0: You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you. Conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more.
1: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact...
0: Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. This is The Comedian's Comedian, in which we take your favourite comedians and try to shuck open their heads in a sort of oyster like way and get into the goodies therein, whether those goodies are to do with creativity, process, resilience, uh, adaptability, uh, development of material, development of persona, or, and increasingly my preoccupation, just how people bloody cope with things now. Today we're talking to Martin Moore, also known in former years as Martin Big Pig. I think I first met him as Martin Big Pig, um, who is the quintessential adventure comic. Uh, If there is a country in the world that Martin hasn't squatted in, hitchhiked across, uh, juggled or done stand-up in then uh, I should like to hear about it. Martin is a tremendously warm and engaging person, as you are just about to find out. uh, And we are going to talk about his background growing up in Northern Ireland, uh, how he established a circus school there, how his very unusual path, uh, even by circus standards, I should say, uh, led him all over the world via street performing to uh, stand-up comedy I'm going to say and beyond. I do mean and beyond because now he's he's pivoted very successfully during the pandemic and now offers mentorship online. But throughout it, you are going to get the sense, I'm sure, that Martin is someone who is absolutely unbreakable, not simply by virtue of his sort of toughness, his personal toughness, but also because he is so excited and enthused about new challenges and so activated by the idea of uh of of things changing he just really warmly embraces all of that so it's an absolutely inspiring conversation uh i got loads out of it i've put it all into this episode nothing on the insiders club uh because Well, it's all one big story and I didn't really want to chop it up. Um, But you can still join the Insiders Club if you're so inclined at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. And happily, uh, if you are a member of the Insiders Club, check your email now because you have all just been sent uh, an invitation to something rather special, which I'm not even going to say what it is until uh, after it's happened because uh, the idea is it's a little treat for the Insiders rather than some big motivating call to other people to join up. But... uh, Maybe it will function more as a damn, I missed it if you haven't already joined up. But uh, check your email now if you're in the Insiders Club. And if you're not, then join it at your leisure. Now, without further ado, this is Martin Moore. How lovely to see
2: your face, Martin. (laughs) Have you been... um, So, just a quick one. We're not... You're not using the visuals are you i'm not using the visuals at all yeah no, great, no. easy um this is i've set up this um this room previous to COVID. this room just behind me was yeah. just an industrial shelf with tax files and because u- <laughs> i'm doing my online tutoring I yes, set it up to look nice. I made it. Well, yeah, it's
0: lovely. It well, nice. listen, yeah. this is as good a way into our conversation as any other because obviously the first thing I see upon looking at the background, uh, the shelf in your room, which I now know to be carefully curated, oh yes, um, are your not only your uh, I believe that's is that a mandolin and is and a ukulele? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and a boron. And a boron... Oh, oh, there we go. Yeah. I, and I've never known how to pronounce boron, so thank ah, you for that. Well, so but obviously... Different, different pronunciations of it. Oh, fair news. Obviously, the first thing I notice are your very heavy professional juggling hats, the really nice triple felt ones. Yeah, nice, huh? Oh, mate. And it reminds me that you are... We have We have a sort of similar thing in common. I'm, it's a running joke on this show that I always bang on about having been a street performer.
2: Mm. But you were proper circus. Yeah, so I I was never actually really a street performer. I did do outdoor shows, but I was mainly working as a circus performer. And at the start, I did work in big tops and tented circuses. I have never done that. I don't think I've ever
0: worked in a big top, not proper, not proper circus. You know, there's a, yeah. like I, I think from the from the side of street performing, there is like, oh, you get the circus guys who come out and do the street, and they've got ten times better skill than anyone else, but they can't tell a joke. Mm. Like mm. you know, and I'm sure from there, from the point of view of circus, street performers are sort of awful rats who are kind of giving up their art in order to hustle for pennies.
2: Yeah, so I so I don't know. So it's. It is very different styles of performing. So the at, at its basic, the good street performer that's a busker it is able to make money. And and that's what that's about. Whereas yeah. a, a good circus act on the street won't necessarily make as much money and will tend to have more, more jokes and more tricks. Sure. Uh, there are two different things I'd say much more the, the really good street acts. So, like, you know Logie, don't you, that I work Yeah, with. yeah, of course. So, Logie, the psychology behind that is is yeah. amazing, is really amazing, really in-depth, really amazing. And I think that's the difference is that the, so this is what I was for years, was a circus performer. I always got paid. If I was doing street shows, somebody was paying me to do, it was just an outdoor show, somebody was paying Yeah, me gotcha. And when I first used to try and busk um, the occasions that I did, I was didn't know how to do it. I had to learn Dave Southern taught me how to, to be a close friend. Yeah. Lovely Dave. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. We we used to go, me and Ed Jones that I was in a double act with, we used to go to Chester in that so for for that kind of circus, Christmas to Easter was always really quiet uh, for bookings. Yeah. So yeah. I, w- I would write a new show. We would rehearse, do a new show. I'd try to put a new skill in, what, whatever, another ball into the juggling. And mm. then we started going, we'd go to Chester. And, Outside Browns. Yeah, and we'd busk in that spot and we'd do it to, um, it was like live rehearsal, like a paid rehearsal, really. Yeah. And we noticed that we weren't making very much money. And Dave Southern, who's genius, fantastic mm. street performer, mm-hmm. Dave was making loads of money, and then he took us to one side and he basically told us the psych- taught us the psychology behind it. And the very next show, we have a hat full of money. Yeah, fantastic!
0: I love it. I love it. Now, listen, I don't want this to be too inside baseball for the passing uh, listener. Yeah, but obviously there is. Uh, there's a sort of thread here, and you're the first circus, proper circus performer, a former circus performer I've had on the podcast. It shames me that in three hundred and fifty episodes you're the first. But um, but before we get into, let's let's just let's just establish who you are now and then we'll get back into talking about some streety circusy things and how that informs what you do. The the Martin Moore that I I mean, I find it funny calling you Martin Moore because to my mind you're Martin Big Pig. And you are an adventure comic who's played probably most countries in the world. And your last Edinburgh show was called Adventure Comic. I've seen it. it's on That's available for free on YouTube. And it seems to me to give a really, like it's a really representative show of what you are, which is I go out there, I have incredible experiences. I meet people giving pencils away to poor children when I'm travelling around the world. You know, you're a psychonaut reporting back on sort of profound drug experiences and you seem to be one of those people who is kind of archetypal do you know what I mean? do you understand what i mean by that yeah, it's like yeah. you're you, you sort of seem like you you have a kind of timeless sort of adventure and and madness in you mm, maybe maybe so
2: so the, the, <laughs> the thing that that i've always thought so i was really lucky that i got involved with new circus when it was new and al- yeah. and then alternative comedy when it was new. And now that's become so that what was alternative comedy is now mainstream comedy and it's a mainstream thing. But what I've always been interested is I liked liked being on the edge of it. Now, I didn't really know that in those things, particularly when I was on the edge of it. But then when I realised that, that I have to keep finding the edge of it. So I went and did some shows in Mongolia. So I was the, the first European that had gone and done shows in Mongolia. And I like that adventurousness to it that you're going into, you're breaking new territory, you're going into new ground. And even just some of the places like in Southeast Asia that were only a few of us were doing those places. And uh, now you get the big names are going there like Bill Bailey and uh, Jimmy Carr and the, the big corporate thing is involved now. Mm-hmm. So it, make, it means I have to keep moving on, not to get engulfed by the corporate mainstream. You have to keep moving on to new territory, which keeps things really, really interesting, doesn't it?
0: Well, this is it. I think as someone who, like, you're, you're in your 50s, I guess, Martin? Yeah, yeah, I am. So I think I, I feel like I see comics in their 50s sometimes becoming, and 40s as well, I guess, um, becoming kind of resentful of how comedy has changed and perhaps left them behind. There was a big heyday in the 90s where a few, a relatively few comics were getting rich from an established circuit. And it was, it wasn't easy, but once you learn, you know, once you kind of had your act or, you know, 40 or 50 minutes, you could hack around in the, in the words of a friend of mine, um, Then, then it's sort of, I feel people feel like the ground has shifted underneath them now, or probably has been shifting for a long time. And I feel like that can lead to resentment. Now, I'm not pinning that on any individual so much as sort of saying, I recognize that. And I kind of, I suppose I recognize the potential for that in myself. Mm. You know, I'm in my early forties and I can look out and go, Oh, it's all, it's all different now. And it's changed and it's all, you know, social media and everything else. You don't seem to have any of that, probably because you are continually, like the the game for you is to challenge yourself and perpetually break
2: new ground? Yes, I, I think so. I think the thing, so what I'd seen in both of those things in my career, circus and then uh, alternative comedy, both of those things, I saw them get really big. So initially, when we were doing the non-tinted circus shows, it was, I think, we were against animals in circuses, against wild mm-hmm. animals in circuses. And that was where the whole movement for the human circus came from. Now, that became Cirque du Soleil. That became the logical progression of that, became the biggest thing in the the biggest live producers, producers of live entertainment in the world, Cirque du Soleil. It got really big. And that's when you know the corporate sponsors get involved and all that stuff gets involved. The, the same with with stand up. It got to the point it got really big, and now agents are in control of it. So so the mm. acts that are resentful, they're really great live acts. They're really great in the live environment, but they're not getting offered to go on live at the Apollo, or they're not mm. get. And they see somebody who can't do the job on the circuit, and they're resentful of that because they see them getting the TV break because they've got a big agent. Well, it's just mm. the way it goes. That that. If anything gets big enough, Coca-Cola get involved and start sponsoring it and it turns Mm. into something else. And so to avoid that, uh, like I am obviously slightly involved in that because I do festivals Mm. and they have corporate sponsors. But to to keep away from that, you just have to keep moving. You just have to keep refreshing what you do. I I recently with um, lockdown, I've started doing trying to do more online stuff, like I'm teaching online. I'm trying to have a better presence online. It's quite a steep learning curve. And a lot of my younger comedian friends that are really switched on about this stuff, they offered me great help, like guys phoning me up, talking to me for an hour, telling me how to get audio right or how to work green mm-hmm. screen and stuff like this. And and they said, several of them said to me, more or less said that they liked the fact that I was still relevant, that I'm 57 years old and I was still relevant. And I'm really flattered by that because that's what you want. To, why would any performer... Not want to be still relevant, and it makes me think of a thing. Do you remember when? So when David Bowie died, and when David Bowie died, lots of old interviews and stuff of him were were getting aired, and there was a fantastic interview with him. And they they said to him, "Why do you keep changing your style? Like, why when you had Ziggy Stardust did you kill that off and do a different style and then a different style?" And he said this great thing. He said, "Oh, as a performer, it's like you're swimming, and." After a while, your feet can touch the bottom and you don't have to swim anymore because your feet are on the bottom and that's you have to swim out into deeper water because you want oh, to keep swimming and that's good. And I just saw that's exactly what I've been doing is I just always want to get out into the deeper water because as soon as your feet stop going on the ground, you're not swimming anymore. That's beautiful that's beautiful
0: martin let's talk let's talk about then the first time your feet Touch the ground. That was presumably in circus. Who who were you going into circus? Did you get into that as a teenager, as a
2: younger man? Yes. Well, so I take I, us right back to the beginning. Yeah. I was always, in retrospect, I realised I was always good at physical things, and I left home very young, and I'd I'd worked on the fair, so I'd come from working on the it, it's Portrush in Northern Ireland is a. Uh, it's like Blackpool would be in England, a very small version of Blackpool. And I worked as a, as a, from I was like 13 to about 15, I worked on the Walsers. I was um, working on the fairground. And I left home and I went hitchhiking. I was doing a lot of hitchhiking in Europe and kind of fruit picking and things like that. And I, was trying to find a way to stay on the road. I was trying to find a way to do this and keep travelling. And I just went to a party in the Black Forest in Germany. I just had met Sunday. They took me to a party. I got shown how to juggle. I went back to Northern Ireland to take up a, a part-time job painting the backdrops in a little theatre and met some other jugglers. And then, long story short, we set up a community circus in Belfast. And we were really lucky that in that first two years... Because it was in the 80s, there was all mm. the, the troubles were happening. We got a lot of Arts Council funding. So we had like Goliath came to Northern Ireland to, to, okay. to teach us in clowning. We had ra Zoo, who were the... like one I of, remember them. Yeah, yeah, they were like one of the, the world's top... Uh, juggling acts. They came to Belfast and worked with us. So within a really short period of time, I had this fantastic professional training and was able to turn professional. So it was just kind of lucky, really.
0: Well, there's two things. Before we get on to whether it was lucky or not, and there's obviously certain, uh, there's good good, uh, timing afoot. But just going back to this idea of I wanted to stay on the road, should I suppose that someone who wants to stay on the road has a sort of tougher life at home, or something that you want to stay away from?
2: Oh, so partly that was I. So I can trace this back completely. So when I was um when I was about, I don't know, probably about fifteen, one of my friends from school. Maybe I was younger than fifteen, maybe fourteen. One of my friends from so so I'm in Colerain, It's in Northern Ireland. It's a small town. In those days, it was a very small town and Northern Ireland's a small country, but because of the troubles, it was very insular and like bands didn't come over from bands that were touring in the UK, didn't used to come over very much. It was a very, very insular little place. And I was kind of, I liked punk. I was listening to to John Peel And I was kind of, it was too small. It felt too small for me. And then I had a friend from school and he had an older sister and his older sister lent me um, a couple of Ramones albums, the book uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter S. Thompson (laughs) and, and On the Road by Jack Kerouac and literally changed my life like literally that point oh my god like changed a sort my... of relief parcel yeah. of access to another world and then I became totally totally into Kerouac really like devoured all the Kerouac that I could get hold of and it just opened this idea that there's this other world that you can go to and the sad thing is because that guy was a guy from my school and we lost touch and everything I always thought. At some point, I'd like if I ever met that woman again, I'd like to go. Thanks. I never give her back them records, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. but I, um, I, you know, you, it changed everything. It's so funny that it's it's such a specific point that I can see that changed the direction. And and what was it that spoke to you in those records? Was it
0: the and and those books? Was it obviously it's it's representative of a different possibility that you hadn't kind of considered or you hadn't been aware of. But what was it? Because presumably we might imagine another kid in your class at school who was given those books and had next to no interest in them. Mm. What was it in you that it that it spoke to?
2: I don't know. So it's hard to say, isn't it? It's that thing of that there's out there. That thing of out there. And so where do where do you want to go? I want go out there. That's always kind of been my thing. And you know the funny thing is, but at at, at that same period, I was um so I was quite big for my age, and I, I played rugby. And the, the sports teacher at the... I played rugby for the town team and for my school team. And the sports teacher took me to one side. Remember, this is 80s, Northern Ireland, troubles, no jobs. Like mm-hmm. three generations of men out of work, like no prospects. And he took me to one side and he said, "Right, we're going to get you guys, we're going to get you a, a tryout for the, the town team. And look, it was me and my mate, and he went, uh, if you guys do well the guy that owns the local nightclub, who's a member of the rugby club, he said, when you turn 18, he'll start you as a doorman. He'll give you work as doorman. And I went home to my mum and I said to my mum, oh, this is great. Look, the teacher, Big Joe, he was called, the teacher at school, has said to me, uh, if if I do well, I'll I'll get a job in the nightclub as a doorman. And my mum was going, well, that's great, isn't it? That'll be great. And now every time now I look at uh, a jonglers a, or a comedy club and I see an older doorman having a really horrible night chucking out drunks and stuff and I go that seemed to me like a good prospect at one yeah. point because the world was so small you know the country was so messed up and it was so small and the troubles were so bad and so those books had just well they were the light at the end of the tunnel weren't they they were like an, there's an escape route.
0: So we'll get right back to the brilliant Martin Moore in just a second. I just wanted to thank Mark. I got a nice email from Mark. You can email me too info at comedianscomedian.com. Uh, Mark says, in reference to the Erin Foley episode, uh, talking about having finally honed second drafts rather than working stuff up to be better. Mark says, I remember you saying it years ago, and it struck a chord with me then as I do exactly that. I was writing something this afternoon, and literally two minutes ago, I found myself tinkering with punctuation and wording of something which is a second draft at best, uh, as i was doing it, your words came into my mind and I stopped. So you continue to be helpful. Thank you, Mark. You're very welcome. And thank you, Mark, for remembering the little code. I am, of course, a cool guy uh, at the end of your email, which allows me to be guilt-free about giving you a, a, a thinner... A smaller, a briefer, a more brief response than your email uh, demands. So, if you want to get in touch, if you do fancy being a cool guy, feel free to say PS, I'm a cool guy at the bottom. And then that basically helps with my kind of morbid anxiety because some of you send me such uh, long and involved correspondence that I do absolutely read absolutely all of it. But I often find that when people have sort of gone into depth, I I really want to say more than just, that's so great to hear, thank you. (laughs) But I very rarely have time. So, if you put, I am a P.S. I'm a cool guy. Then that uh, that lets my anxiety off the hook. I'm talking of anxiety. How lovely! How lovely to hear. Uh, martin 's unshakable self confidence it 's just such a tonic. Uh, we will talk a little bit more about his mentorship, but look in the show notes of this episode uh, to find uh, not just all of my doings but also uh, everywhere you can catch up with and connect with martin not only you can watch his uh, his YouTube special uh, online but also you can find out if you 're a new comic about his mentorship and the things that he can offer you. I think what he has to say about moving energy around the room is really really interesting, so I think that You should all pay for the privilege of hearing him talk uh, more about it and more specifically in a one-on-one way. So there we go. That's my little shout-out for Martin's mentorship stuff. Uh, More information on that from him and in the show notes. uh, We could get back to the episode now. I'm still crackling along um, knocking out these uh, virtual office parties that the Infinite Sofa has become over the Christmas period. That's virtualofficeparty.co.uk and you can also go to comedyinsights.com if you would like me to come along and talk to your business about resilience, authenticity, creativity or any of that stuff. I'm so uh, pleased... And relieved to be doing several of those at the moment, uh, while the circuit continues to be in the shape that it is in or isn't in at the moment. My God, what's going to happen when we come out of lockdown? Too, who knows? This dates it. Right, let's let's put our let's put all of that on the back burner and get back to the uh, not abrasive, but what's the word? The kind of like a sort of comforting drill sergeant, you know, the uh, the motivation inherent. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
1: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: So you literally ran away with the circus. So tell tell me about that from that Black Forest experience. You created the you started the circus scene or the circus school or was it in, yeah, in Northern so, Ireland?
2: So when the person taught me to juggle, they they showed me three balls and I I could do it straight away. I'd never tried it. I could do it straight away. And then they said, oh, I think four balls is you do two in each hand. And like, honestly, this was in five minutes of, of seeing juggler, I could do four. So I could, <laughs> I could do it straight away. I and, just want to point out to the casual listener how
0: absurd and unusual that is.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, and and then, so I, I met up with these people. So uh, well, a guy called Mike Maloney, who was an Australian who sadly passed away, and a guy called Donald McKendry, and they were jugglers. And in those days, it was not like it is now, like... There's no YouTube and you, literally if we, we, at one point we saw a guy, oh, who you might know, Rex Boyd. I know Rex, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Rex was travelling around and he had his rucksack and there were some juggling clubs sticking out the top of his rucksack and the the other jugglers, one of the other jugglers in Belfast saw him and went, oh, are you a juggler? Come and meet us because it's such a small world. And... We basically, we set up a community circus. It was non-sectarian. There was funding for that kind of thing. We got trained. We were obsessed, you know, what jugglers alike. We were obsessively juggling. We didn't know any other real jugglers. We didn't really know. So like, for example, my friend and I, Jimmy Miller, we learned to do five balls from a photograph because we'd never seen a five ball juggler. And then we, we, as we went on, we got better training. We got better and better. And then we set up a pro group and now that circus school still is in existence in Northern Ireland, still one of the leading circus schools. It's absolutely fantastic. And um, uh, still runs still one of the, yeah, one of the top circus schools. And what, what's that called? It's Belfast Circus School, Belfast Community okay. Circus School. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible. So so then what,
0: did you find that, was there a leap from there to doing Big Top? Were you like travelling
2: doing Big Top? So it, initially that was where the work was, was in Big Tops. And I would get like little contracts when they were in between people that could make a bigger commitment. But what I'd already had was I already had problems with the animals in the circus. I I came to it with that problem. And I really couldn't, it was difficult for me to be around that. And then really, luckily, what had happened then was about that same time there, it was a boom. There was a boom in it. Like we went, we had, You know, we had kids on stilts that we would take out and we had some adults that were kind of the parents of the kids on stilts. And there was a core group of us of about um, eight people and we got to be pro-standard and started to get proper work. And then what we would get was we would get from a performance, we would be getting similar money than a week in a tented circus because it yeah, was a like sure. one-off thing. And I just liked it much more. And it, it was kind of a, it was sort of a political statement on my, on my side that I, cause I've campaigned against circuses. I've campaigned <laughs> against animals in circuses and this was just the new world. And as it is, it worked, it, you know, it, it, it became, a, it was a big campaign anyway, the non-animal thing and it, and it worked. And now we don't have wild animals in circuses in the UK and, you know, it's still going, uh, Yeah. Yeah. So it it was a good, it was a good movement to be part of. So, so
0: was there an element then when you were, was there even within the world of circus skills and campaigning and mobilising and organising, was there a part of you, did you start to feel like, ah, my feet are
2: touching the ground? Completely. It's exactly what happened. So, (laughs) So we had, um, what we did in Belfast, uh, to people that, that weren't alive in the 80s, this sounds like an unusual thing, but I think people that weren't alive in the 80s will, will remember that people were squatting things. And like, if you yeah. met somebody that was an artist and they said to you, and you said, oh, have you got a studio? And they said, yeah, I squat this building. That was yeah. quite common. That was quite a a normal thing. And then Thatcher broke that. Thatcher change, changed the laws, didn't she, and broke that. Um, so what we had done there in Belfast, we'd squatted a building and then it eventually got given it's quite a, a big campaign and it got given to the it got given to the city by the railroads and it's an art center to this very day it's still an art oh, center and we because we've been involved from the early days we had offices there we had a, a dance studio that was a rehearsal space everything was looking great and I just had such itchy feet and so I left and went to the United States on tour and I literally got to be a big fish in a little pond. So um, I just needed to go. I just couldn't not, I couldn't have stayed there. My friends stayed there. Some of them had, you know, kept, kept going. I had good times. It was all good, but I just couldn't. I just needed to get out of that. And I wanted to really test my circus skills and my show in a bigger environment. And at that point, it was America. That was the place that drew me.
0: Okay. And so what what kind of age are you at this point and how long is it until you until the moment you first walk on stage with no props and start oh, being funny? So
2: that's 1986 that I went to America. So the story is I went to America, toured in America partly legal, partly busking, partly just uh-huh. street shows. So I ran out of my visa and my um I was doing corporate stuff and I was doing mm. uh, Faniel Hall in Boston where you it's like it's like Covent Garden and you, and you have a licence and so on. Okay, forth. okay. And all that ran out and I just kept doing street shows. I basically, I hitchhiked from Boston all the way down to New Orleans, worked a street in New Orleans for a while, went down into Miami and then came home. So it was like a, a five-month trip. And um, on the way back, going back to Belfast, kind of going, oh, I don't really want to go back to Belfast. Stopped off in Manchester to see some jugglers that I knew. Met a guy called Ed Jones. Ed Jones, this was September. Ed Jones said to me, um, uh, oh, I've just got... A, uh, we juggled together. We knew friends of friends. You know what the scene's like. Quite Everyone yeah. knows each other. He said to me, oh, I've got a contract for Christmas. Do you want to do a double act over Christmas? And I said, yeah, uh, okay, we'll do that. And I stayed. I inherited a, a squat in Hume. Uh, like a nice squat in Hume in Manchester. And Never went back to Belfast. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that. It's. It,
0: do you think? Because listening to this, I feel like I've I've had elements of this kind of. That idea of like you can go there and work and just go to a different country and you almost like my street show when it was when I was doing a solo show, I could buy it when I got there. I needed a rope and a packet of crisps. So I didn't even need to travel with props. Mm. You know, you could just go to an op shop in Australia or you know, like a secondhand place and get a, a charity shop suitcase and just create it from there. So a lot of what you're talking about kind of resonates with me. And I suppose I feel like you went a lot harder than I did. You know, you're of an era that kind of, and you you had more of a kind of pull for the open road. Mm. Some of it is so sort of exciting to hear, and and gives me just very very pleasant flashbacks to some of the more outre elements of my, of my own kind of former career. But I suppose the difference is, I don't know if I either had the confidence to to do it as hard as you did, and I, I just wonder, is it what qualities do you think that you have that kept you going because when you say you know I go hitchhike from Boston to wherever you, you there's there's kind of you're obviously sort of physically confident you didn't feel like your your safety was at threat mm. but i suppose there's a kind of a mental confidence as well where you sort of did you feel like the world will look after me or did you feel like i know how to look after myself too but what what kind of confidence does that
2: take to just throw yourself into the world mm. so i did have a thing from when i used to hitchhike a lot that I, uh, that the world will look after you that let's see what happens. And like some of the time when I, so I hitchhiked a lot in Europe and it was, and I had money, like I could have traveled. I chose to hitchhike. And and again, it's different days. It is different times than it is now. Like now you never see hitchhikers. It's Mm. so rare. If I ever would see a hitchhiker, I'd always give them, I owe. So I would pay back by giving a hitchhiker a ride. You hardly ever see hitchhikers these days. And whereas you would see them all the time in the 80s and the early 90s. It's
0: it's so sad, isn't it? Because even now, like, I suppose the contemporary idea about a hitchhiker is just, it's like some person just wandering in the woods with a sword and a pouch and a hood. You know, it's as anachronistic
2: almost as that. Yeah. It, weird, isn't it? It's really Now the only time I can think of recently like by recently, I mean in like the last 20 years, given people lifts, is when there's been a music festival on and you see yeah. people trying to get to the music festival or just yes. come from the music festival. But, um, but then I, when I used to hitchhike, I used to literally do a thing with that. If I took a ride and I was traveling north and then they dropped me wherever they'd going, and I was still heading north, like say Germany or somewhere. And then if the next ride happened to be going south, I had a little rule that I had to go south again because it was that thing of not having a destination and just say, but the truth is as well is if you don't have a mortgage and like, I didn't really live anywhere. I I did have places that I, that that I was calling home, but I didn't really particularly live anywhere. I didn't live anywhere that I wouldn't have left at a day's notice until I was about 41. So I, I didn't have mortgage. I didn't have children. I didn't have any of that. So you can just have that thing of, that freedom of just traveling around and see what happens
0: that little rule of yours, I suppose you impose that rule on i'll follow I'll go with, in the direction of of the last lift mm. because otherwise the the randomness and the chaos i mean
2: could that end up being dispiriting oh to think, man. like you, so, yes. you want it to- sometimes it it really hard and like sometimes you'd be running out of money and the thing with this as well that. A lot of the time, it was because the circus work was seasonal. So for example, that time in America, I did the the, the work in Boston. I worked in Boston and then the, the season was over. The weather was finished, was going. Like we had a hurricane blow through at one point, like the tail end of a hurricane. So nobody could get street shows out. And um, so then I went traveling and it was like in between work rather than just I'm going to do this for my whole life. There there always was some work to be had somewhere along that line. Sometimes I hadn't booked it. But remember that the comedy circuit used to book. So my my circus gigs, my pro circus gigs used to sometimes book four years in advance because it'd be the Christmas show or it'd be something seasonal. So they'd book in advance. And when I started on the comedy circuit, nobody booked more than about four months in advance. And I love that because it just seemed like <laughs> and, and you didn't have contracts it was just on a handshake or on a phone call and it it seemed so free and 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 easy that we're we're moving into
0: comedy territory, but before we do the last thing I want to ask about your your work on the street is what differences did you notice between you and obviously we've established your kind of circus end rather than hustle end mm. but but in terms of like the pitch and the the politics of the pitch and the people around you like was there something you felt was there an angle of your street stuff that you felt you particularly excelled at and were there other elements of it that you that you were lacking in that you saw other people do better than you so, just to get a sense of like you in 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 whichever pitch you're in you know everyone hangs out at the back of the pitch watching each other and and stuff what what was your place in that
2: yeah so there's often So, like, in Boston, there was a busking war that happened where people were properly fighting over the pitches. Okay. Is that between between circus and breakdancers, or is that inter-circus? All of that, and magicians and and everybody. And then in New Orleans, when I was working in New Orleans, they were doing some roadworks, and there was one of the marching bands that were like a street band, but like a busking band. And what they would do is they'd, they'd march up and down the street a little bit. They'd be playing their stuff. Then they'd stop in a circle... And they'd gather a crowd, and they'd play their music and somebody'd go around with a hat and they were doing road works there on that bit of the uh, of the street, so they came on to oh, I forget what it's called now, but there's a, there's there's two main pitches in New Orleans, and this one in the the main city pitch. They came on to there and they wouldn't play the game. They would, like, normally the buskers yeah. were having like 45 minutes to an hour each and then would swap over. And they would come, they wanted to do two hours at a time. And it literally came to a fight, literally came to a fight where every time they started, we would all start. We'd all start our shows. And. Yeah messed them up and nobody could get a crowd and it was a war of attrition who was going to need the money first uh, the truth of the matter was it was me that needed yeah. the money first and and it, it got resolved and it got sorted and at that right at that this the the we squared up at, at that and the guy that was the bass drummer in this marching band with great big black lad And he squared up to me and I had squared up to him and we were trying to negotiate as such. And it all got sort of sorted out and I shook hands with him. And he said to me something like, I can't remember exactly the name, but he said, I'm glad I didn't have to get Loretta involved. And I thought, well, you've got to get your wife. So I said, what's, what's this about? And I was like, yeah, no, I'm glad too. And then he showed me a gun that he called Loretta. He showed me a handgun that he had in the back of his pants. And I Jeez. was just thinking, all right, yeah, I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry, I waylaid you there into the kind of the the fight aspect of it. But just in terms of your, your abilities and your kind of... Um, I don't mean abilities, skills, or talents. I kind of your, your traits, mm. your traits of performance, of the way you connect with an audience. Because one of the things about you is, and anyone who has listened, anyone who is listening to this episode will sell, you're enormously charismatic. And I just I you see, you know, we we've all seen street performers who have loads of charisma and almost the the lack of material doesn't matter because they're just a joy to watch. Mm. So I, I would assume that that was one of your strong points was your connection with an audience. But what, what's your take on your? Yeah. So
2: on a on a uh, I don't know academic kind of level, where, where I thought about this, it's some people do a thing where they can move energy, and it doesn't matter what they're doing, but they're moving energy around. That's definitely I'm one of those people, and it's it. I think it's a natural a natural thing, but it can be a learnt that you can learn to do it if you can tune into it. It's like when people are, do they call them empaths? So somebody that is empathetic towards you. So you're feeling sad. You haven't demonstrated that you're feeling sad, but they know you're feeling sad straight away. And they might just subliminally just do something to cheer you up. It's that kind of thing. And some people can just move the energy around. And that's what I do in street shows and in uh, stand-up shows, especially when I'm hosting a gig, if I'm an MC. I literally feel I'm channeling energy around the room and I'm moving their energies and balancing their energies. And I think that's often the difference when you see a performer, that thing of, that charisma thing, and it feels like they're glowing. It feels like they're, it's because they're channeling the energy around. And is that, that's a beautiful idea, beautifully put. Is that learnable or is it innate? Yeah, so I think it's learnable, um, but I also think that a lot of people that, a lot of people do it without knowing that they're doing it. They just do it naturally and because it works because that thing that skill works better than if you don't have that if you do have that naturally uh they don't examine what they're doing so they can just do it and they just go out there and if you said to them oh what are you doing they they might not know what they're doing and other people are so I'll give you an example of this uh I um in Northern Ireland, there's a thing called Festival of Fools in Belfast, and it's run by the Community Circus. And a, a dear friend of mine, Will Chamberlain, who was the director of the Community Circus and the Circus School, uh, who passed away, uh, Will uh, used to book it, and it was top top street performers from all over the world. Like it's like if you look back through who's been performing at Festival of Fools. It's a beautiful festival. It's on the streets of Belfast. It's free to the public, and uh, absolutely fantastic. And If I named you the people that were there, you'd know them all. They're all the top, top people. And uh, a couple of years, uh, well, a a couple of times in a row, I got the people's vote for the act that they'd they'd enjoyed, uh, that they liked the most. And Wool said to me, oh great, and even then he said, what is it that you do? And I said, oh, it's magic, isn't it? It's magic. And he he said, yeah, I suppose it is. I suppose it is. And that was it. Even Wool, with his great professional eye for good acts couldn't still couldn't quite see exactly what was going on because in those days uh, those days uh, 2015 2016 2017 about then I was deliberately trying to be a juggler that didn't do tricks that was the that was the backbone to the act that it was the juggling show that didn't do any tricks and um, I think it's that it's moving energy it's the magic of moving the energy around. That's beautiful. I
0: think. Uh, so, what was it ap- that appealed to you about the juggler that didn't do any tricks? Oh. Is it because that was seemed like a new idea, or it, is it that it seems like uh, an incredible,
2: cha- a personal challenge so, to yourself? Darwin uh, said that um, the the creatures that can adapt to a changing situation are the ones that are going to survive. It's the kind of the bit that became misquoted as survival of the fittest. I um. Was mainly working in comedy. I still was doing circus shows, but they weren't my, they were probably less than a third of my income. And at the age of uh, 49, I developed a condition in my hands called Jupiter's contracture. And Jupiter's contracture is a hereditary disease that causes your fingers to curl up. Um, a famous example of it would be Bill Nighy. If you look oh, at yes, Bill Nighy, okay. he has yeah. his fingers curled up. So a uh, uh, hereditary disease. There's a quite a cool thing about it, mate. A quite a cool thing is it's known as Viking disease because yes, I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah because it's they, they've treated it's people of Viking descent that tend to get this condition. And my joke at the time is because it, your listeners might not know about. I have a very big beard and. Um, Viking disease. When I walked into that doctor's surgery, he didn't. He, his receptionist would have said, "Oh, we've got a guy here that's got problems with his hands." It took one look at my face and my beard <laughs> that's, that's Viking disease, mate. Uh, so the truth was, I uh, my fingers had curled up to such a point that I couldn't juggle juggling clubs, fire torches. I couldn't actually hold things in my hand. I had to have very, very small juggling balls to be able to do them. So mm. I. It, and I thought this was forever. I thought this was what I was going to be like forever. So it was a choice of, do you just stop or do you do something else? And so I did have things with yo-yos and I've got some like, I've got some pro standard yo-yo tricks and stuff. And I thought, what am I going to do? And I realised I was struggling to keep trying to do something like I had done. And I thought, oh, I'll just do something else. Okay, you can't juggle, don't juggle. Uh, people are booking you as a juggler. I still want those bookings. Okay, I'll be a juggler that doesn't do any tricks, and that's where the whole idea came from. Oh, I love it. I and love it. After a while, it, it started. After a few, a few times, it started working really, really well. And then I realised I was being a family-friendly comedian, pretending to be a juggler. So then I stopped talking. So then it became a silent show
0: of a juggler
2: oh. with no tricks. So you, and when you say you realised
0: that, you realised, hang on a minute, it's almost like you realised that you were cheating against the rules that you'd established for yourself by invoking another skill. Yeah, so skill. what, so what so I, I you, like, like,
2: Yeah, your feet were touching the bottom, basically. Yeah, that's exactly it, that's exactly it. As soon as I realised, oh, now what this looks like is, like, it was going very well, all working, and everything going good, but I realised it was like a, I was being like a comedian. And so I thought, okay, well, the stop and juggling work. let's stop talking. And that opened great doors for me because... That's kind of the holy grail, isn't it? If you've got a show that doesn't require language, but th- this show as well, um, I put a rule on it, which I'm just writing a new show now, where I'm going to have music in it. But this show didn't have music either; it didn't have any it didn't have any sounds in it. And it, when it it really works, it's a really good thing. But it's that's terrifying to to walk on to do an hour without any sounds, or there are sounds, but the sounds of me breathing and I whistle a little bit in it. I, like I whistle a tune. It's not that, you know when street performers whistle to replace the words where they okay.
1: go.
2: Oh, sure. It's, it's I know speaking. Mean, yeah. So it wasn't that. Yeah. I, I did whistle a tune in the show, but there was, it, it, so it was just me not talking. It wasn't like mime or anything. And that's terrifying to walk on to do that. I can't imagine I mean I when I, when I was doing
0: my solo street show, the finale was a ten person tug of war with me walking on the middle in the rope, eating a packet of crisps, and the point of that was that you know how street shows work. you need hype fire and noise. It was very quiet. it was two inches off the floor. And it was dumb. You know, I mean, it, it was it was skilled, but no one was going. Wow, look at the skill. And I sort of deliberately imposed those conditions on it, not because I can't juggle fire torches up a unicycle. I can, and everyone else was. Um, but or not everyone else, but there was a, you know there there are the well known tricks. But I but a part of the reason to impose that was, and I think this is accurate. I don't think this is me varnishing the past. Um, was that I thought, well, this will teach me to be really funny. Mm. This will teach me because this is really fucking hard. Mm. Mm. So I'm putting myself and I and I think from everything you've described, it's like part of the the you've got a really healthy relationship to your creativity because putting in positions on something, if we we all know from writing jokes, if you sit down and go, right, what can I write about? Mm, mm. You know, you're blocked, you've got nothing. But if you say I'm gonna write an hour on sunflowers, then you suddenly you're like, Oh, you really have to look into it, you really
2: have to go to it. Yes, yeah, right, isn't it? it? needs it needs it's too. It's too difficult. So, one of the things I do with, so I'm teaching these online write, comedy writing courses. And one of the things I do there is if they're having real trouble, I get them to do things like write haikus. So, if I'm trying to get them to get a rhythm into their speech, I get them to write haikus. And they, they love it. My, my, my clients love that because everybody can have a go at a haiku because it's so restrictive. And the truth of it as well, because it's so restrictive, it's a great leveler. Like, a rubbish haiku and the best haiku are quite close together aren't they? <laughs> you, you know what i mean and yeah, um, yeah I, I think it's that's that's right that sometimes the limitations are part of the, the charm to it
0: and when it comes to your stand up then was that like a deliberate move was that a moment when you kind of went indoors or did it or did you stepping on stage at, in the alternative comedy scene yeah, I mean I remember I remember seeing you in Edinburgh. When did you do you did Funny Peculiar and Funny Ha ha? Mm. It was like a kid's show and an adult show. Do you remember what year that was? Oh. I feel like that might have been the first time I saw you. Do you know the ridiculous thing
2: with Edinburgh is I hadn't kept uh the flyers I never really bothered. You know why some people you go, oh, they're they're like having an archive to themselves. They've kept all the yeah. stuff. And I never really kept that stuff. And then a few years ago, my friend Carl, uh Gave me a box of stuff that he had kept that just over the years, he kept from a load of people and he was just giving them. And I uh, got the flyers, I've got some of them framed on my wall yeah. now. And you know what? Honestly, there was an entire show there that I would have spent however long writing. Twenty-eight days performing it every single day. I probably turned that a little bit. I have no memory of that show at all. <laughs> <laughs> but I've written, um, I've worked out that I've written thirty. I've written thirty-one solo shows now. So, and that blur- is that. Thir-
0: is that thirty-one solo shows that sometimes have common elements, like a particular trick that's carried across from one to the other, so, or is that
2: thirty-one hours of stand-up? No, twenty-five of them are stand-up. The other yep. ones are circus shows are mm-hmm. solo solo circus shows the solo circus ones of course have elements of being similar like right? if there's a ball juggling routine it's probably yep. still juggling balls uh, yep. but the stand up ones tend to be different and um a thing that I I try with the stand up I, I again it was an observation that I had that one year I did an Edinburgh show and then after Edinburgh, I back on the comedy circuit and one of my friends says to me, oh, it's great, isn't it? When you come out of Edinburgh and you've got all the ma- new material for your set. And I thought, oh, none of my material can go in a set. None of it can stand on its own because it's a show. And I strive to do that mostly with Edinburgh. I try to make it that it's not a collection of stand-up, that it's a themed show. And so often my Edinburgh stuff never can go in never goes that that's
0: fascinating that reminds me of someone like uh, like a Phil Nicol who will constantly innovate and write new shows and characters and concepts for edinburgh and yeah and we've talked about this on on the podcast is uh, his his kind of unbreakable club 30 to 40 mm. remains the same and has done for years
2: yeah yeah and it's fantastic i, I have a it diff- is um, i have a different theory on it but for, for me because this is the thing isn't it with stand up is that it's so, or maybe any performance, is that it's so personal. What completely doesn't work for one person will absolutely work for another. But I had a thing where, uh, again, somebody said to me, uh, your set is as close to the a, a bulletproof set as I've seen on the circuit. And I went, oh, that's nice you just say so. Oh, that's great. And I went, no, that's terrible because that's when it's dying. As soon, <laughs> as, as soon as it's bu- as soon as it's bulletproof, it's a di- it's starting to die, isn't it? It's almost yes. it's almost like as soon as it's a working joke. it's kind of over, isn't it? I
0: feel the same. I feel the same. I get really frustrated with, which isn't to say that I've, I'm not saying, oh, I I write a load of bulletproof stuff and get bored of it. But I do get bored very quickly because for me, the best moments are always, I'll try this in a different way. Whoa, I'm learning here. You know, know, the best, best moments are all when you're learning in the right direction. It
2: can be quite fun when you're learning that something doesn't work if you put it backwards. Yeah. So Adam Adam Bloom, uh, so Adam fantastic fantastic, isn't he? An absolutely yeah. fantastic comedian and a very, very intellectual and astute about comedy. And he said to me at one point, oh, many years ago we were talking and I was about to go on and I was going, oh, I'm really excited. I've, I've got this joke and I know it's going to work and it's working, but not as good as I think it was is going to work. And Adam went, oh, that's the best part. Yes. And goes, that, that's right, isn't it? Because as soon, as soon as it's there... It's, yeah. great. it's great to have it, right? It's great to have that joke that's working. But now it's time to do the other joke. Um, like, I don't so much do this now, but what I used to do was, as soon as I had a really good closer, as soon as I'd got a bet that was a, a solid closer, I used to start opening with it and have yes. to come up with another closer. To- yes, I'm, I'm, I've heard other
0: people talk about doing that. Mm. I think that's really, I think that's a really, I mean, I've, the, the few times I've challenged myself to do that it it has been either a disaster or a great learning experience yeah. or loads of fun. You know, I, I haven't done that as much as I should for me. That's one of those things like people on the podcast often say, oh, I record all my gigs. I don't listen back to them. And I do listen back to mine,
2: but I feel that's a similar kind of,
0: I should be opening with my clothes a lot more than I am.
2: Yeah. I, but there's also, isn't there the thing of when it's professional that it, that something changes, doesn't it? Something, something does change with that. Like, I'm very much, so I host the stand, in normal days, in non-COVID days, I um, uh, I host one of the stand comedy clubs every month. I do one a month, uh, a weekend mm-hmm. at Newcastle, Edinburgh and Glasgow. And I often see acts come that are newer acts and they'll try to do different stuff every night. And I always say to them, well, how come you're doing different stuff on like Friday and Saturday night? And they'll go, oh, I just want to try stuff out. And I'm always going, Look at the pros aren't trying stuff out. Friday and Saturday night, those people have got their the audience have got their good clothes on, and they paid money, and they got a babysitter, and they they came for good quality comedy. And so you kind of at that level you have to produce, don't you? And and uh, I think it's a I, I tried to say this to my clients on the online tutorials is there's kind of three branches of comedy. There's the the pro progression gigs that you have to do your best stuff and you only do your best stuff and they're always your best stuff. And then there's your muck around gigs where you have to be funny, but you have got the option of doing something new and you, you can try a little bit. And then there's your absolutely muck around gigs where the audience know you you're just going to come and try stuff and it's a new material night or something. And I think it's really important to section off what you're doing. This is the one with the pro, this is the one for the pro stuff. This is act development and mock around a bit, but still good. And this is do what you want. And I think that really helps in the development of the material and the writing and to keep them fresh. So
0: when I started, when I was kind of street performer at Covent Garden, sitting in Henry's Cafe around the corner, looking in time out. For one of the first ever times and going, right, I'm going to do stand up. And Paddy Bramwells was telling me, oh, what you do is you you look through timeout and you ring up any of the numbers that say open spots, is you ring them up because this was not <laughs> recent, this 15 odd years ago. The thing that the other street performers around the breakfast table would say to me is, they'd all or a couple of different people said just take a trick on with you because you're clearly terrified take a trick take a an escape trick or a couple of juggling balls in your back pocket figuratively or literally and then if you start panicking you can pull that out and i remember thinking that is the absolute opposite of my strategy like if i do that if i have something to fall back on i'll fall back on it you know i've got the name of the game for stand up the whole for it to be real is i've got to walk on with no other options mm. How was your first time uh, doing,
2: doing Just Talking with No Tricks? Yeah, so I completely agree with what you're saying there. Uh, I went into it in a different direction. I went a completely different... So I had I was living in Manchester. It was at the start of, uh, of uh, the, the comedy scene really starting in Manchester. And I wasn't really in touch with it at all. I was trained... I had an act in those days where I did an eight-foot freestanding ladder... I jumped from the eight foot freestanding ladder onto an eight foot unicycle. It was a basketball juggling act. And at the end of it, I would fire juggle uh, on the eight foot unicycle. I'd press a button on the helmet I was wearing and a firework display was built into my costume. So it was a big act. And I got interest in a a touring European non-animal circus. And I was going to go and do a season with them. So it's going to be four months uh, working and traveling in Europe. And I was really putting in the training to make sure I was, you know, this act was completely solid. I was training at a juggling club and one of the kids that was at the juggling club, his dad was there, but he didn't participate. He just watched his kid juggle. He's a really nice fella. And I was practicing and he, as I dropped the stuff, he kept giving the things back to me. So I ended up inadvertently being on the ladder for a really long time. And when I dismounted after too long, I wobbled and broke my ankle. So I'm out of work, and I, out of this contract, that I was the dream thing that I wanted to do. And I was on the streets of Manchester on crutches, and I bumped into Dave Gorman. And I knew Dave from before he was, a he used to be a poet at one point, like a comedy poet. And I'd met him on this kind of alternative comedy circuit alternative cabaret circuit and so I knew Dave and met him on the street he said to me oh there's a new comedy club while you're off work there's a new comedy club opened you should go and have a look see what you think it was a frog and bucket in in Manchester it was in the little place and so uh, exactly like you say you phone up and you ask if you can get a try out I didn't know what I was going to do and the guy Selwyn that ran the comedy club had seen my circus stuff so the first time I did a gig, I closed the show. I was a headliner. The first time I was in a, in a comedy club. And so it was a comedy juggling act. So I did. I was doing a comedy juggling act and I, I kept being, I got, I moved away from the circusy side of it, So it was less juggling, but it was still a prop act. And maybe like, I don't know, Maybe a bit like if people have seen Carrot Top and he's got different props. Mine was less wacky than Carrot Top, but it was all things coming out of a box. It was all, Mm -hmm. look at this, look at this, look at this. And then uh, basically what happened was September the 11th happened. September the 11th happened. I was in Malaysia when September the 11th happened. And on the way back from Malaysia, I I literally had a prop flight case with machetes and stuff in it. And uh, I just thought, Oh, I'm never going to be... I went through Amsterdam and it was so much hassle at security. I just thought, I'm never going to be able to travel with all this stuff ever again. Oh, cool. This this is over. I'm never going to be able to travel with a box of props ever again. I got back to where I lived in Manchester and I dumped it in the bin. I put everything in the bin. I took a photograph of the props in the bin. I guesstimated there was about seven hours of material in there because it was all this stuff. Dumped it in the bin, took a photograph... Uh, made a phone round and anyone that had booked me to headline, I said, look, I'm changing my direction. Uh, can you put me on in the middle? And they said, yeah. And so I went in the middle. After a little while of doing that, uh, like a really little while, maybe like two or three months of doing that, I was ready to step back up and start closing shows again. And the, and people were so good about it. And people, and it, it was one of the great moments was Chris Addison watched one of the gigs and he said, Uh, afterwards I said what what do you think and he went oh it's great it's it's exactly the same but without the props and I thought yeah that's brilliant but what you're saying I had a prop uh, uh, a prop joke um uh that fitted in a pocket and I always kept it in my pocket and for ages I was going on to do stand-up and I would tap my pocket before I walked on to check that the to check that the prop was there and I'd always just check it was there and I'd never do it and then eventually I went this is ridiculous and I threw it away I threw this little joke away that I had and then I was on on my own and you're exactly right the thing of one person on their own with a microphone that's fantastic isn't it there's something extra in in nothing isn't it
0: (laughs) So was there was there a trance oh, I've got to ask, what was the prop joke?
2: Oh, it was a, a prop joke involving. It was a joke uh, about femi domes, and femi domes okay. were a big thing at the time. They were, sure, they remember, were a, yeah. a, a big topic at the time, and so it was just an easy joke that fitted in my gotcha. in okay. my pocket. And the truth was, it wasn't that good in the set with the props that would have been a little filler throwaway joke that didn't always yeah. get used anyway. It was like one of those little things that you might go, look at that and then go on. And, um, but yeah, it was that that I was, it's like when you see guitarists who've moved on to being, or playing a musical instrument and they don't use it anymore and they just keep holding it yeah. <laughs> and they don't play yeah. it. But yeah. Um, the material you were doing
0: as you kind of transmuted from... It's like, was the material you're doing previously joke, 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 juggle, 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 joke, joke, joke? Were you able to just drop the juggling and just do the jokes, or did you have to re-script what you yeah. were doing? Those two, your your two or three months of being an open mic, <laughs> yeah, before you went back to headlining, were you? What changed in your approach? Were you as you were trying stuff out? Were you turning things over? Were you trying stories? Were you trying observations? Was it like a
2: big creative period, or a stripping away of other mm. stuff? So it was a creative period, and it was also a realization that. And it is quite interesting, actually, uh, because of COVID now, something's happening. So in those days, what I had, when I had the prop stuff, I had a really big finish, like a really strong big finish involving the props and involving a volunteer. And because okay. it involved a volunteer, and there was a lot of stuff going on uh, with the volunteer, and because that was so big, I could literally just muck around and improvise. And if the improvising didn't go well... I always had the big finish. It was always there. And uh, I spoke once with Smug Roberts. Uh, do you remember Smug Roberts? He's not really I don't, long I, I
0: actually, I've known the name. I don't know that I've ever met yeah, Smug Roberts. So
2: he was great. He's I always say he's the comedian that Peter Kay wanted to be. He was okay, like gotcha. he was like that. He was at the Frog and Bucket doing the Manchester scene pre-Peter Kay, and he's he was hugely influential to a lot of acts. And he did things like one time he took the entire audience on a tram to get some fish and chips and brought them back to the gig. He did those. Okay. He's that guy that did the, sure. the wild, unbelievable things. And we're talking, and he had a really big finish to music. And he was like, the, he was one of the top acts at jonglers. He had a, a bulletproof finish. And he came up with the same thing. We were sitting talking and he said, oh, because we've got the big finishes, we can do what we want. It means you don't have to try that hard and there's no fear to it because you know you've got the thing. And I thought, oh, that's right. That I don't want that. He he liked that. But I didn't like that. And so then I said, when I do the new thing, there's no volunteers, there's no nobody else on stage. It's only me on stage talking. And that really changes things to the point. And why it's sort of topical right now is a lot of circus performers that I know now are thinking they're not allowed volunteers on stage because of the Mm. COVID restrictions. Mm -hmm. And there's people that have been going for years, absolute top professionals, have got huge gaps in their show and don't know what to do. And don't know what to do because they've always based it on this interaction with another person creates a completely different thing. Do you imagine? Do you fear? I mean, it's, it's weird now. We're recording
0: this in October 2020 and we're sort of seven months into the pandemic. Um, and apologies to listeners who were listening to this as, a, as an escape from the pandemic. Feel free to skip this bit. Um, but I suppose when I hear Whenever I hear about references to COVID and stuff at the moment, I still don't know. We all still don't know whether this is around for a few more months or a few more years, Mm. even. Like, I don't know what your sort of personal expectations of it are. But I'm wondering whether we might... Do you anticipate that we might look back at this period 10 years from now and say, oh, that was one of the big creative moments if if you are as you, if, as as you are martin one of those people who sees challenges as an opportunity to take your feet off the from touching the bottom again to to create to to transform again do you, is it possible do you think that we some people might look back on this as well that really radically changed everything i was doing and and there were positives
2: yes so i think the just this period I expect that we might have moved towards this anyway. But for example, I know now I was speaking to an acting agent just recently and they said, oh, everybody's self-taping. Would you be in a position to self-tape at home? And you go, yeah, I would. And then we were talking about voiceover work. And, and uh, the agent said to me, oh, yeah, the stuff that, that we mostly do, you, you could probably do that from home if you can get the right setup." up. By chance, I did a gig that uh, Friday, that was a couple of Fridays ago, and two of the other acts, one's a, an impressionist, and the guy that was hosting does voices as well, and they both do loads of voiceover work. And I was going, oh, how's that been effective? They're going, that's what's paying the mortgage, because we can yeah. do it from home. So I think that, and I think also... We've kind of had a thing where people are watching comedy online and it was paying. People were paying Uh quite a lot of money. And then my impression from what I'm hearing is that money dropped off because people stopped paying money online. And I think what will happen now is there'll be online shows of a really high standard that people will pay to see, much like, you know, the way cinemas had started showing. So the theatre is happening in London and the Mm. cinema in Hebden Bridge is showing you it live. And so yes. the people went, I think that's going to happen. I think we're going to get that theatre. It's going to be shown in the cinema in Hebden Bridge, but it's also viewable from home and people will watch that. It will be live and they'll watch it from home. And uh Hot Water Comedy in Liverpool, mm-hmm. those guys are really switched on. They're incredible, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, re- really switched on. <laughs> yeah. And the, the they're ahead of this, so far ahead of this anyway, that, When they built the new club, in the lighting rig, they've got really top quality camera equipment. So in the early part of lockdown, I did a gig, a Zoom gig for them. And we were in the club. There's only the acts and the technician and the show manager. And we're watching a big screen in front of us where we can see the audience. And we did the gig from the club. And it was watched at home. But now they've got that all set up. Let's say at home, let's say a thousand people watched it and nobody in the gig watched it. there's no audience yep. now they've got half an audience Let, let's say that's a hundred people but there's a thousand at home that's a big gig let's say yep. covid finishes and it's lockdown and people are 200 people in that little club 200 people watching the gig and a thousand at home a massive gig isn't it and the great thing is they'll feed each other the people that like the gig will then go oh i don't feel it like going out tonight but shall we watch it on the the Zoom, shall we buy it on the Zoom? And they'll watch that live on the Zoom. And the people at home will go, that was brilliant. I wonder what it was like to be there. And they'll go, and it'll actually all feed each other. Yeah. There's no, none of it's going to get uninvented, is it? No, no, I think it's great. And I I heard now auditions have been done on Zoom, the voiceovers on Zoom. I've got clients for my teaching in Egypt. I've got Egypt. I'm about to get a Brazilian guys just signed up. I've got Europe, Australia, New York. I've got a client in New York. And, you couldn't have done that a few years ago, and now this this technology is so good. Uh, the world yeah, it's opened the whole world up, hasn't it? So t- tell
0: us before we. I, I want to come back to that to to your your kind of mentoring and that and the the work you're doing, and and we'll get into that in a sec. But I want to just kind of pin you down on your material and your writing and how that happens because the stuff I saw on Adventure Comic which we can find on YouTube um is it's like it's two or three big stories and it's like crowd work at the top and obviously very comfortable I mean incredibly you, you're incredibly comfortable doing this crowd work and kind of occupying a position I suppose of like almost like a like a naughty uncle I mean like your relationship with the crowd it's like as you like you have found a way whereby you really suit your age in relationship to the audience. Like, I guess you've always been an outsider to most crowds mm. and now you, you have this, like you, you come across as kind of cultured and well-traveled, like, an um, I always think of the guy from uh, from Fraggle Rock. There was a character called Uncle Travelling Matt right. and he'd send postcards home and that was his relationship to the show. You'd never see him in the show. He'd be on the outside. So so there's sort of an, an element of that. Do you think that's fair in terms of your relationship to a bunch of people in a room?
2: Yeah, so I um, very much think that a performer, and it can change from performance to performance, it, it, It's none of it is written in stone, but I think you need a through line of what you're doing because you don't know if you're achieving it if you don't know what you're trying to do. And I, my basic line would be uh, a friendly, interesting Irishman. So I'm yeah. being a friendly, interesting Irishman. And my emphasis is on the interesting because I think if it's interesting, you've got something going on. The rest of it will come, but it has to be something interesting to start with. And I sort of look at the thing of like that particular show is I'm trying to go... I went over and looked into the abyss, so you didn't have to. That was kind of the yeah. idea. Here's something you might not know about. I'll tell you about it. Yes,
0: and does that does that angle is a very successful one? Do you suppose that that kind of do you suppose that that allows you to to focus less on big explosive jokes because you've always got them? They're always interested. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Is is there an element to which, just in the things we've been talking, you have got big jokes, I'm not suggesting for a minute you haven't, but it's almost like, does the interestingness, is there ever a danger that that can become
2: like having a trick? Mm. So it's, um, yes, it, I would say yes, there is. And you have to remember what you're trying to achieve from it all. But the a one-hour show... Or if that tours, I do 2.45 minutes, so it's an hour and a half with an interval. They're a different pace. So I've tried this at Edinburgh where I've tried to go club set pace, closing weekend, big club set pace for an hour. And it just exhausts people. People can't laugh that much. It just drains people. So it does become a thing of pacing with it. So like a 20 minute set at the end of a night in a comedy club is a different, kettle of fish than an Edinburgh show and even if you were touching on similar subject matter you're doing it's it's to achieve a different job um and so within that it's that moving the energy around thing again isn't it it's moving the energy around and it's knowing where you need to have a big laugh. Like sometimes you do need a big laugh. One of one of the things I I do in my teaching is that I get people to imagine that their set was done and they were looking at the audio where it spikes. You know that thing yeah. when you look at the audio. Mm-hmm. And if you just looked at it without listening to it, you could tell if a set was going good. You could yes. You could work out if a, if, if the set was in the right order by the peaks and troughs on the thing. Uh, but yeah, I think interesting is something to aspire to, isn't it? Really like funny you can be funny and we know people are are very funny and people are funny for years and they're neither interesting or interested and so yes. if if you stay interested and you aspire to be interesting well that's longevity isn't it right right there that's a really interesting point
0: that's a really interesting point and and when it comes to longevity do you intend to gig until you drop Mm. do you so, want to spend the rest of your life performing so i had
2: thought so uh until we got locked down and i thought <laughs> ah so it's really funny for me because all my dominoes all fell because of covid everything sure. was in everything was involved in being live with people um i i think that i, I identified that with uh arnold brown do you know arnold mm. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how, how old he was at the time, but he was certainly, a, a, definitely a pensioner. He was well into being a pensioner. And uh, he was just going, I compared him on the stand. He was just great. He was just brilliant. And he's an old guy. And I just thought, what a great thing. That's so brilliant. I need new material. And And I just thought, well, that's it. it. We can keep going. We can keep going. So most of my circus friends, uh, I'm going to say nearly all my circus friends of, of my generation, uh, They're all retired. They all retired. Anyone that's still involved in circus is in management more than in Mm -hmm. performing. Virtually everybody's retired. Uh, Steve Rollins would be a great exception to this. Steve Rollins, fantastic performer. Yeah. Posting videos of new tricks that he's learning. Like every other day, he just recently broke a load of new world records. The guy is, he's at least my age, Steve. He might maybe be a year older than me. And you go, this is it. He stayed interested and he's kept going and, you know we say in comedy don't we oh uh, you see somebody does a set and they go oh, he's a bit dead behind the eyes yeah and that's horrific isn't it to go well, and do that that's like the word that's like hell to me the thought that i would go and go through the motions of doing a set and yeah it's just taking up room that somebody else should have it, as soon as they're dead behind the eyes they need to move on to let somebody else in so you you said that you had thought that
0: you had thought you wanted to keep gigging forever. Yeah, yeah, I reckon. Oh, oh I, I see and and you still do.
1: <laughs> oh, I, I see. Uh, yeah, 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 no, yeah. I, <laughs> I, I still do,
2: but what happened with me was so as everything so what what happened with lockdown was I'd finished my Australian season. I'd done Fringe World in Perth, I'd done the Adelaide Fringe, the Adelaide Fringe finished and then I was up in the Northern Territories teaching children on a a remote aboriginal community working for an arts organization that the kids all have ptsd they're exactly like the kids i worked with in northern ireland in the 80s they're exactly like the troops that i've worked with that have got ptsd from coming back from afghanistan and iraq and these are little children so we're using the circus skills to engage them we're trying to bring them out of themselves a little bit. And uh, and that shut down. That shut down because of COVID, because that uh, that was the first place to go in Australia because the Aboriginal elders all have health problems, uh, pre-existing health problems. So that closed down and I went, right, okay, I'll go back to Perth. I made a phone call. I booked in a weekend of gigs in Perth. In the flight back, those gigs got cancelled. thought, okay, no problem. I made a phone call. I booked in a week of teaching in schools, teaching circus in schools. That closed down. Came back yeah. to the UK, Edinburgh closed. Everything closed. My diary emptied. Everything was disappearing. There were weekends that I had seven gigs in the diary. And of course, none of them happened. Next year's Australia closed. I was my, my Australian tour next year. They're not opening the borders. Canada shut down. I spoke to some, some uh, global promoters in the circus world. They were going, nothing's happening until April. So it's really that now. It's like a performer with with nowhere to perform really
0: yeah yeah although i think compared to most i feel like i'm not concerned about you martin (laughs) do you know what i mean because i think uh uh, i think you are one of the most kind of constantly innovative do Mm. you know what i mean like you'll you'll think of something obviously one of the thought one of the things that you have started doing is the is it so is it mentoring or what what exactly i've seen you advertising online
2: yeah so for a long a long time i've I taught, so I, I spent a long time teaching at Huddersfield University and uh, to drama students. And I did that, I did workshops whenever I'd go. And like, for example, if I would do, uh, a couple of years ago, I did a tour in Southeast Asia and in Singapore, the local comedians all chipped in and hired me to do a specialist emceeing workshop because yeah. they're a small scene. They don't get to see the MCs very often. And when you look at something on YouTube, uh, like a comedy special, you don't see the host. You don't see that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So they need to do it. So i had done this. I'd, I I often do uh circus festivals like the Western Australian Circus Festival. And I was doing a thing called act development. And I would always do act development one-to-one for an hour. And it would literally just be things like saying to people, if you're going to do that, you need a car. Have you got your driver's license? No, I haven't. OK, so you're going to graduate from circus school. You've got these amazing skills. You need a driver's license. It was always little... Practical things, sure. and then it would be things about. So I, I did dance at college, so a lot of it would be based on their movement. So I wouldn't really be telling them what to do with their juggling, but I'd be telling them what to do with their feet while they were juggling, yep. or what to do. With yep. And then when we closed down, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to try and do something. So I started offering these online tutorials, and it really has taken off. It's really good. I, I keep the fee as low as I can because I think. These people aren't in work either. So I've got a really reasonable fee on it. And they're one hour via via Zoom. And it's basically, I get them to answer four questions. And then we work out what they want. And we base it on that. And it's not workshop. There's no formulas. It's working on their material or what they want. And at its most basic level, I tell them things like, for example, one person... Uh, had had, before lockdown, had a gig booked where they were going to do their open spot at the Glee Club in Birmingham. And they had hoped to go there again. And I said, right, when you walk through the door to get on stage, there's a little step and you don't notice the little step. And often people that walk on that stage for the first time stumble on that little step. (laughs) Yeah, You don't want to start your open spot by stumbling. Look through the door before the show and there's there's a little step. So sometimes it's as practical as that. Yeah. Yeah. The more advanced side, it's working on rhythms, it's restructuring. I've got people from brand new comedians that are doing open spots. I've got some open spot people right through to... I've got somebody that's been a professional for 45 years, trying to reinvent, trying to be relevant. All yeah. with, I've got jugglers, I've got... Um, loads of comedians i'm just moving it into burlesque just now i'm just branching it out okay a, a burlesque specific one because of the dance element to that sure yeah um got a magician and uh, uh, really interesting because for me it's they ask the question and and i figure out what they need and figure out how they do it and it's often I, i'm i feel i'm trying to contribute something as well i don't want to sound like a wanker but there was a There was a thing on the forums, wasn't there? the comedy forums going right, what we can all do is if you're a pro act, open your own gig, start your yep. own gig, and we'll all get back through this. Now the truth is i I don't want to do that. I don't want hmm. to open my own gig. It's not something I feel that I, I want to do. So I thought, well, what can I do? I can try to offer an affordable way that people can be better. And yeah. that, that's what I'm trying to do. So so it's £25 an hour. It's £25 an hour. It's pretty low rate for that kind of thing. But I'm doing it here in my room. I'm doing it in my office room. And everyone is interesting. There's not been a single one that hasn't been fascinating because the various problems, the different the, the different things that people need, and it's nearly always stuff that they haven't even looked at, that they, they haven't even considered.
0: That's great. I think that's really great. And And I think... To finish, I'll put all the details in the show notes for this if people want to get in touch with you. I think to to wrap up, I just want to, you mentioned problems there. And I think we've had like a really interesting kind of journey through your journey. We haven't talked much about the problems that you've had, either with material when you can't get a thing to work, and how you personally kind of cope with those problems, how you overcome you know, writer's block or the physical equivalent of writer's block. Mm. And also just with a regard, I'm sort of fascinated by the mentality because you are so kind of uh, mentally tough, I guess.
2: I'm Mm. interested if there are cracks in that and how you deal with them. Okay. So um, this is partly what I'm teaching uh, for people at the minute. This is exactly what it is at the minute because people are crumbling under the lack of gigs a, a lot of the time and they're trying to be productive and, so I have a whole system of how to overcome writer's block and that at its most basic, there's a version that I show people like a painting by numbers type thing where you're just getting yourself thinking. And it's that, isn't it? It's as a circus performer, I know that if I'm gonna if I'm gonna go practice my juggling, I have a kind of daily juggling practice that I do. Uh-huh. So I do five minutes of yoga, because if I don't, I'm fifty-seven years old, my back's stiff, I'm old. So I do my yoga, warm-up. I do a drill. I do a juggling drill. And then I practice only the thing that's going in the show and only the thing that I'm specifically practicing. About 30 minutes later, it's done. It's over. And and that's it. It's done for the day. And I have equivalents of that for stand-up, dance, movement-based stuff of how you do the thing that's going to get you to the end goal, even if you have no ideas. Because the truth is, with stand-up in particular, if you have a brilliant idea... Well, you probably don't need me. You you don't need me there. If you've got brilliant ideas, great. If you have no ideas, you need something. And I, I spoke to a guy who was uh he wasn't one of my clients, he's a friend, he's a comedian, and he's five years into his career. And I said, How are you getting on? What's your how's your writing going? He went, I haven't written anything. I only write on stage. Now we've heard that a lot. And uh and I said, all right. And he hadn't had a gig for five months at that point. I'm assuming he probably still hasn't had a gig to, at this point. So he's five years in and he's, you would think, prime time for a career. Yeah. You'd think yeah. five years in, your career's starting to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. And he hasn't written anything for five months. You know, that's a lot of your career that you've just wasted. You need to learn how to write when you're not on stage. And even if you get your best work on stage as a professional, you need to do something, don't you? So today yes. I'm not getting on stage. I, my weekend's gigs that were coming up this weekend are all cancelled because they're all in and around the North and Lancashire really? and they're all locked down. So they're all cancelled. Sure. And so do I just go, right? I've got no gig, I'm going to watch Netflix. Well, no, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use the time, at least the amount of time that was driving to the gig, doing the gig and driving home well i'm going to work in that time and i think this is important this is the professional thing isn't it that if we keep finding a way to work when they let us back on stage it's just going to be better isn't it i think i hope
0: <laughs> so without to so finally then thank you it's a great answer but finally with without wanting to tread on the toes of the the things you say to your your clients What do you personally struggle with? Like, what are the toughest elements of your creativity?
2: Easy. I'm old and I've written a lot of shows. So it's literally this. What happened happened is, and I can't remember when it happened, but in the last 10 years, I realised that I told all my stories. I told all the good stories. And so it was one Edinburgh, Dave Fulton and I, Uh, We're talking, uh, Dave Fulton, uh, American comedian, I think. Of course, yeah, yeah. brilliant. I said to Dave after his show, that was a brilliant show. It was a really good show at the stand. I said, that was a brilliant show. And he said, yeah, did you notice I told a story about being at school? I thought, was a great story. And he went, yeah, he went, I've told all my adult stories. And I thought, that's me. That's exactly me. So now what I do is I make something happen. I make something happen. So Oliver Reed, uh, the actor, he said, they said to him about why was he always drinking and out? And he went, oh, because life will pass you by. You have to force life. You have to force life. And I thought, well, that's it. That's what I have to do. I have to make something happen. So, so this year's Edinburgh show was called At The Edge. And At The Edge was going to be the story of me cycling from Adelaide to Perth. And I was going to do the journey, do that adventure thing. I was going to be that story. As it happened to bushfires, stymied that. So then then I'd gone, right, I'll do at the age, but I'll do it cycling up the coast route, lands end of John of Groats, but going via the coast. And yeah. I'll make the comparisons with Australia and that'll be the show. Then COVID locked down that. But that's basically my thing is I've no stories there. I've hundreds of stories, but I've done them all. And I have a catalogue of them. So now I have to make the story happen. I have to make the story happen. I like an example. That Jupiterans. When I had my operation for my yeah. Jupiterans with my hands, that was in the show that night. The night I came out of hospital, I would fifteen minutes written on that because every new experience is precious to me now. And I, I summed it up at one point where I said, "At, at my age, I've um I've got more memories than dreams." <laughs> <laughs> and is that so? Yeah. So that's where that's the thing. That's a struggle for me. Is is that thing? It's not a struggle. But I, I'm conscious of it that I'm at that point where typically people get middle aged spread, they sure. watch Netflix, they sit back, they let life wash over them, they drink their nice glass of wine and happy days. But I'm not that yet. I'm, I'm not having you that. You've started
0: yet. training harder, lost weight, got a haircut, reinvented yourself. You know what I mean? You've
2: led even further into it. Yeah, yeah. So and, that, so, and that, and so one of the things now with, with lockdown that that's happened. So I've always been somebody as a circus act, I've always had to keep fit. And then as an older circus act, if I don't keep fit now, if my bone density starts to go down now, as would, it happens with middle-aged men that I'm going to have real problems. I have back problems, etc. anyway. So I started training and now I've got a fitness account on Instagram. And just now, people are starting to say to me about the Zoom thing. Oh, can you do me a fitness class on ah, Zoom? Great. So now I'm actually thinking I might retrain and be the guy that does strength training for over fifties, uh, like at my gym thing. So it is this that there's always opportunities coming along, aren't there? Uh, but it, yeah, I just don't want to sit back and be a middle aged guy. That's the that's my idea.
0: Where can we find your uh, information about your course?
2: I'll put it in the show notes as well. Yeah, great. So just go to my website, which is martinmoore.com. More, M-O-R. M-O-R, martinmoore.com. Or they just drop me an email. It's really easy. It's just martinmoorecomedy at gmail.com. If they tell me what they're interested in and we take it from there, I send them the four questions. We work out their hopes and dreams figure out a way that we can get there. And yeah, it's, it's fascinating work to be doing.
0: That was Martin Moore. Check the show notes for more information about where you can find out what he's doing and particularly uh, where you can have one of these one-on-one mentorship sessions with him. I think that'd be a very good thing to do. And I tell you what, I... I I think when you've been going for a little while, you forget that you can learn things. <laughs> That's the danger, isn't it? I know when I went along to the Dr. Brown clowning workshops and saw a couple of other comics there, uh, I remember thinking, oh, I'm a bit eggy about turning up because I'm supposed to already know what I'm doing. But I think you've got to, I think Martin's definitely a lifelong learner, isn't he? So we can all... Uh, follow that example. And maybe even if you think, well, I've gigged with Martin, I'm professional, you might value his opinion. So uh, why not consider that also? So thank you to Martin once again. Thank you to Nathan for uh, uploading and editing the show. Thanks to Jack Crossland for logging. Your podcast consultant is Peter Dobbing and the music was by Rob Smountain. And thank you for putting up with my bits when I'm so horrifically bugged up. I'm uh, um, and what can I say? I'm sorry. <laughs> I've delayed the recording of this by two days in the hope that what I thought, I thought it was an allergic reaction to dust in the cellar that I've recently kind of cleaned out and rejigged, seeing as it's functioned for the greater part of this year as my studio. And um, So, of course, you move it and tidy it, and that kicks all the dust up, which I am allergic to. But I think I'm also just a bit, I mean, you know, COVID or nothing, pandemic or nothing, when you've got a child at school, they just come back with everything. God. Damn it. So it is is the Boutros to blame (laughs) for my uh, horrific... Uh, blocked up nose i can only apologize and i'll stop talking about it now will we post amble let's have a little post amble but uh just a little one and i'll talk to you for that in a second but otherwise this concludes the episode coming up soon uh nigel ung returns after the briefest time imaginable to tell us how he went from twenty thousand to two and a half million youtube subscribers in a few months and uh, here's the secret you can't replicate it, <laughs> but you could certainly lay the groundwork as he did. Also, we've got the brilliant Athena Cogblenu coming in uh, to coming in. <laughs> She's already. No, wait, she didn't even come in because it was uh, it was recorded remotely, of course. Uh, but she is coming on to the show soon. That one is in the can and crackling stuff, as you might expect. Athena, very, very funny. Uh, and uh, and we've also got uh, and I'm going to announce this before we've even done it, because Mr. James Castor returns, returns to the podcast Uh, I'm going to talk to him tomorrow uh, for a, 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 what's the word? Um, Never before done second return appearance. So it's his third time on the pod and he's going to be talking about Cold Lasagna, Hate Myself 1999, which is his streaming only self-produced new special, uh, which in the context of him dropping four specials at once on Netflix a few years ago, um, is uh, another typically extraordinary and innovative and iconoclastic way of approaching things so uh, you can watch that live uh, wherever you are in the world i believe on the 17th of december but it's it's not streaming permanently it's just on once and we all watch it together so i will find out more about that for you but at the moment if you search james acaster cold lasagna stream or something like that you'll be able to find out more about it okay let's have a little postamble. but that's the official end of the show <laughs> So here's a little... Here, why don't we post amble about this? Um, I'm uh, I'm having a whale of a time. I got eight hours sleep on Sunday night and I woke up on Monday and something was different and I didn't know what it was. And then I realised it, it was that I didn't have dread about anything. <laughs> there was nothing in the week, this week, the week we're in now, there was nothing that I was sort of... that I had gnawing anxiety about. And that was very pleasant to realise that that was the case. And it was also unnerving... And challenging to go oh do I normally well yes I do normally and it's not even that it's it's not like a holiday of a week I've got lots on but I didn't feel gnawing anxiety and dread about any of it even one particular thing I'm doing later this week which I would be absolutely justified in (laughs) feelings of anxiety about I've got something quite scary coming up more on that later perhaps when it's all safely done but I'm not dreading it have I What, what is all this is this the therapy working? We're only four sessions in. It can't be that quick. Is it? What is it? Is it just realising? I mean, maybe it's the therapy working. The, maybe I'm less worried about disappointing people. Maybe the things that I'm doing, I'm a bit more comfortable with. I'm so sorry about my nose, by the way. I can hear it in my own earphones and it's causing me enormous distress. Um, but what is it? Where did the Where did the dread go? <laughs> Let's... Let's uh, try and keep out the dread. But that's nice, isn't it? Reminds me of that um, They Might Be Giants song, uh, Endless Hopeless Bleak Despair. Have you heard it? Uh, endless Hope," Was it Endless Bleak Despair? It was always there, and then one day it went away. Um, I've had moments like that in the past where it's gone away. But this, you know, I'd, I'd be a fool to imagine this is permanent. But uh, that's nice, isn't it? Isn't it nice? Have you ever had that? ever had one of those moments where you go, oh, where's the dread gone? Um not that I have anything to dread let's not let's not just disappear down this blind alley but my point is um no dread no anxiety this week and uh I've got to do oh I really want to tell you what the thing is that I'm scared but I'll tell you about it afterwards because I think it'll be funny in retrospect but moving towards it it is a hellscape it'll have to be what I can't I, oh this is this is the this is the proper thing so um in the uh, over the term of the hiatus of The Infinite Sofa. I'm still on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Stu Goldsmith, as are many comics who have been experimenting with it this year. Uh, John Robertson is obviously uh, one of your main men, as is uh, Bilal Zafar, who is doing extraordinary work, uh, as is Limmy. I mean, really, uh, Limmy doesn't count. Limmy's been doing it forever and is, is brilliant and successful at it. Um, but I am now doing a series of nice walks, and I think they're going to be two o'clock on a Tuesday. And we uh, basically, you send in a nice walk from your point of view. So you're not in it; it's just what you're watching as you go around. I mean, use a steady cam if you like. Someone has very, very arty, um and it's in landscape mode, and it's less than 500 meg. And you send me a download link. Don't send me a YouTube link because then I have to download it from there. It's just more faff. Just send me a download link, and it can be anything: urban, countryside. We've had one uh, as seen from the back of a horse. <laughs> that was great. Um, and basically, we just play a nice walk and we have a nice chat. There's often sixty or so people watching and chatting in the in the chat stream uh, as I gradually lose my mind. But uh, they're, they're a fun little thing, and uh, I think they they speak to some of the they what's the word? What do I keep saying? Leverage. They leverage some of the fun ways that I enjoy using Twitch, which is that. I try and get something done while something else happens and fail, and that ends up being quite fun and sort of a nice community thing. So if you'd like to come and check out Some Nice Walks, uh, title TVC, but at the moment Some Nice Walks, come to twitch.tv slash Goldsmith at... When did we say it was? I did a little vote. Uh, I did a poll, and I think what we decided was that it's going to be 2pm uh, t- on Tuesdays. I'm putting that in my diary now as you can hear great I'll see you then